rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. We touched a little briefly on this, but I'm actually kind of of two minds about the expanded focus on plot in this season, largely because I know this doesn't get a season three, right? Like, I... This is... I, I can see this going towards something gigantic, and that's how season two ends. And I... I, I That is not a bad assumption. Yes, this is all leading to something. We have the second rising, whether that's something magical that's implied to happen, or if it's sudden, you know, it's simply... Uh, the undead get just pissed off and start, you know, their revolution. Um, some th- shit is going to go down, and it's going. I'm worried that I will feel a little unfulfilled by this. I I think that that's not an unreasonable fear, although I I, I do think that it, it is the case, at least for this season of the show, that it's telling a very particular story. It's telling it in a very particular way. I would say that, that that most of the actual plot elements of the second season are are wrapped up in, in, a, in a nice enough fashion at the end of the series. Okay. Without spoiling anything, it's it's kind it, it does end on a cliffhanger, but it's not a cliffhanger that necessarily demands a resolution. If that makes sense, like yeah. it almost it almost comes across as like a shock ending to a movie or something, where it doesn't really matter that it doesn't get picked up again. So like for all I know, it's going to end with, you know, Kieran shoots Maxine and then everybody's looking and there's the two sides and it's about to go into war and then ending. Like I, I, I'm expecting an ending like that. Uh, you will not get an ending like that, but okay. there will be an ending that is, it is very, you know, cliffhangery. Okay. I think that what's interesting about this season though, is that, you know, wh- one of the things that I'm, that I'm finding about this series of the show is that I like the, I like the difference in the two series a lot. Like yeah. the first, the first series was really set up as this personal story about Kieran and uh, Rick and all the people in the town dealing with you know PDS sufferers, uh, Dominic, whatever his last name is. I keep forgetting what it is, and I apologize. You know, very much said. I think I read an interview with him, um, or I did read an interview with him. I, I don't think I did uh, <laughs> that he originally just wanted to write this story and and kind of hit on the idea of of telling it in a zombie fashion later. And I think you can really see that because, you know, while the PDS stuff is, is well thought out in the first series, it's really not the point of it. Yeah. And the second series very much doubles down on, okay, what, what would this actually mean? What would the world look like after this politically, socially, culturally, what would be going on? And yeah, it's a lot less allegorical this season. I mean, certainly again, PDS is referencing certain things but it's not as for example it's not as associated with queerness or drug addiction or mental illness a little more with uh being a refugee or or an immigrant or whatever in this season but uh i really just think it's it's being an outsider in general yeah in the first season it it again it was more of an allegory in these ways you know kieran is somebody who is different from his community and he's dealing with a community that doesn't necessarily accept him while there are pockets his family who do and that that being torn 
Yeah, because I I think that, you know, you really see that in the expanded focus on other characters. I mean, for example, Amy is a much larger presence in this series than she was in the first. I mean, in the first season, she basically wasn't there at all. Uh, You know, she was a very, very minor character that I think was in two episodes and then went away. Well, to Um, be fair, there were three episodes, so to be in two episodes is a big... But yes, she's not a... Her her total amount of screen time in the first yeah. series was like what fifteen minutes. I mean, she wasn't in it very much, but uh, you know, certainly. But but I think like you know, for example, the third episode of the mm. series, which we're talking about this week, you know, very much tells this very self contained story about. Um, I, I don't remember his name, Freddie. Yeah, the very self contained story about his struggles coming back. You know, being with his. I don't even know what you would call her. She's not really his ex-wife she's not really his widow because he's back but she's remarried since since he died there's all this kind of stuff going on they have these unresolved feelings for each other and you know i'm of two minds about it because i liked the tight focus of the first series very much especially i i just really really like the character of kieran and i find him interesting um you and not only he's be- cute not only because i think he's cute he's totally your type <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, it is the case that uh i i really do think that it, it, you know especially in the third third episode of the series of the second series you know the story of freddy is is really moving and really compelling yeah. for me and you know in a certain sense i think that the, the the second series is is you know if you look at the first series and say okay well it was more about what small towns do to outsiders through the lens of Kieran really from his point of view and the second series I think in a really interesting way is is really sidelining the character he is in it we we don't we get his point of view but it's expanding out all of the different characters in the town to really get into their internal lives in a way that I think is interesting. Yeah, I think I said last week he's kind of a witness to these things. He has a he really only comes in, for example, to the Freddy story at the very end because he happens to be, you know, a neighbor of the fellow. But he, you know, and he does kind of calm him down enough to but it could be anybody. It has nothing really to do with Kieran himself in that story. And again, he's just he's our window into this larger world because we've spent a we've spent a season getting to know him very well yeah no absolutely and i i think that you know i i'm of two minds about the freddy story in the third episode i mean i i don't necessarily understand why you get so much screen time especially in a in a season when there's so much other stuff going on we've got the first rising we've got the blue oblivion stuff we've got what whatever the hell's happening with amy and her tremors you know we we have the the kieran and simon romance attraction uh whatever's going on there you know maxine with victus we've got the brothel which actually is in Rorton, which was confirmed in, yeah. in in episode four, which is completely bizarre because I mm-hmm. still don't I still fundamentally do not understand how a town the size of Rorton size would be able to I know there uh, is an amount maintain maintain a brothel of any sort, let alone an undead brothel, but hey. I mean the the undead population of the town, number one, seems to be larger than it was in the first season, and partially that can be explained simply by it's two years later, you know, more people have gone through treatment, uh they found more people, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh more people are coming out as having you know as having pds and such um but, but I, yeah it it, 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 it it's the kind of 
TV thing where it fits to the needs of the story rather than the needs of realism. Yeah, and I mean, certainly, it, I, I think that it doesn't stretch the bounds of realism. I mean, if yeah. Orton had a subway or something, that would be a little weird. Uh, a subway train, not a subway restaurant, although I, I think that would be weird if Orton had that either. Um, but but I think that, you know, I, I kind of agree with you, and I, I think you're not taking it far enough, though, because... In the first series, Wharton was just a town that was representative of the types of small towns that have problems with outsiders, whereas the second series is very much going down the road of saying there is something special about this place. You know, the first Risen happened here. Kieran is the first Risen. Uh, There are so many PDS sufferers in Wharton because a lot of people rose from the dead in Wharton. Like something about Wharton is important. Yeah. Now, is that implying? Well, my question is: Is that implying there's a there's a meteor in the town of Rorden, or you know, something in the water that made this happen, or is it just this has to start somewhere, and we happen to be where it's starting? Yeah, and I, I guess that's really my my question for you: Is like, is that satisfying? Does that make sense? I mean, it really does fundamentally, I think, change the story it's telling. I don't think it changes the first series, but it certainly does change everything coming after that yeah it's it's not in a way that bothers me it is a slight retcon kieran is at once and and i guess this is where it's making the because on the one hand kieran is an everyman right he's in the first season because there are going to be plenty of people who are coming to their shitty small towns and dealing with the prejudice of that and you know, his his one story is standing in for all of these other stories. And in this season, he is the witness character. He is the everyman. But at the same time, he is very special. He is something more than that. And it's a tension that I think the show is so far able to elide. But at the same time, we are dealing with events that are bigger than everything else here. And... I don't know. It, 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 well, it's just so very different from the first series. Yeah. And, and, and in a certain sense, I think you can probably say that it was a surprise that it got a second season. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that the creator of the show had a second season in mind when he wrote the, the first three episodes. I mean, they do really tell a very self-contained story. Yeah. And so, you know, if he watched a lot of Buffy and he really wanted to make a British version of Buffy, uh, I guess that's what he's trying to do. It's a very different show than it was in the first season. I like it. I don't like it as much as the first season, as I said before. But, you know, it, it is the case that Rorton is becoming very important in a way that was not telegraphed at all in in the first series of this show and and also it's the case i think that everything that's going on in the second season so far has been deliberately seeded to to be going somewhere and you know i I don't know if that's a i don't know if it's really it it, it, maybe it's too ambitious for the show to pull off i don't know you know i I just i i I kind of have this this tension i think about the second season which i think you're seeing now because we're two-thirds of the way through it yeah and i mean my wonder is even what a third season might be i mean next after next week i might have a little more speculation but if this season ends with the second rising happen could season three be the post-apocalyptic show that it you know zombie show that it was not being you know the it, would it be the show that the first five minutes of season one implies 
you know, with, you know, is it dealing with the lives of everyday people while the war is happening? Not quite at their home, but close enough. Yeah, I don't know, because I, I, I think that that's what my tension is, is like, I don't want it to become that show. Yeah. And I think in a certain sense, I'm glad it never became that show. What makes you know, it I think special what I... is that it's not that show. I mean, the uh, we didn't really talk about the first five minutes of season one where it's um, I don't remember the woman's the, the, the woman's name, but, she, you know, where Kieran kills kills the girl and then, you know, things begin from there. I mean, watching that first five minutes, I was like. Oh God! They said it was going to be a different zombie show. Is it just that it's kind of a comedy? Because you know the first five minutes do have some amount of dark comedy, and then of course it turns into this you know quiet character drama. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a certain sense, you know, in an alternate universe where the second season was just more of the same, and in the flesh was sort of like I don't know the British zombie Treme or something like yeah. that would be an interesting show. That's obviously not what we're getting. It's very invested in the zombie mythology in a way that. Uh, the first season wasn't even really. But I am um, glad that I don't think it ever would become The Walking Dead. I mean, The Walking Dead has, and I've read some crit about this, it does have a certain cynicism about, you know, the views of people. I mean, I think I think The Walking Dead believes that, you know, people are just assholes to each other and then, in a, you know, society collapses and everybody's going to be horrible and take what they can get when... Um, you know, society exists, right? Like, you know, people do come together in communities. People do figure out how to. And, I mean, I think the idea of a, a zombie apocalypse show that actually likes humanity rather than The Walking Dead, which fucking hates humanity, would be interesting. And maybe the show would be that show. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, I think that raises an interesting question, though. I mean, do you think that this show thinks that people are fundamentally good or do you think that that's a, a facile question like is this show really just saying well people are people i mean that's kind of i guess what the yeah. point of phillips mm. charmingly inept attempt at turning the crowd around in the fourth episode was really yeah i mean i i it, it's funny because my uh very first note is uh, on episode four was God. Philip is such a scumbag, and at the end, my last note is all oh, good for Philip. You know, like the uh, everybody is acting out of absolute pants shitting terror in a lot of ways, right? Like whether it's you know for Philip his ambitions and his reputation, whether it's Maxine who has lost a child, we assume, or something like that. Whether it's uh, somebody like Jem who's trying to you know, live up to her own image and unable to deal with uh, that image in in a quieter situation. Um, everybody is acting out of these, you know, horrible ins- impulses that they can't quite control. Sometimes they can. Again, Philip ultimately does recognize that, you know, there there is, you know, he is of good alignment in a lot of ways, even if he's done a lot of shitty things and recognizes that at the end of the day it is worth that risk you know doing the right thing is you know he needs to live with himself and you know where his he and amy are going to go i have no idea but you know i the show does believe that sometimes people will do the right thing i mean kieran's parents as doofy as they are are kind people i think uh shirley the nurse that's you know philip's mother is is a is a kind person who's doing the right thing for people that she cares about. I mean, there are people in the show who are are good. 
Yeah, and I, I, it's funny because I, I think that Kieran's parents drive me crazy. Actually. Oh, yeah. And, and like, I would hate for them to be my parents. Um, oh, Kieran's parents pretty much are my parents. And it's... it's <laughs> I, and yeah, I mean, it's just like Kieran's father is like, well, you know, I mean, hey, things could be worse, right? I mean, you gotta gotta start somewhere and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, really? Come on, like this oh. is not a good situation for anybody. But hey, whatever. Um, I, I think you're, yeah. I mean, I think you're right that like, I don't know. Philip is a strange character to me because, in a sense, he's kind of the least well developed. Uh, yeah. I don't really get a good sense of why he's in politics to begin with he doesn't really seem like the type of young person that is drawn to politics he doesn't really seem to have any strong ideas about wanting to make society better he doesn't really seem to be power hungry in the way that maxine is or, or he doesn't have an axe to grind and i mean we can we you know i think it's very easy to compare and contrast why maxine and P- philip got into politics right like maxine yeah. got into politics because her son or daughter or husband or wife or mother or horse or whoever <laughs> like got eaten by zombies in the rising and that really fucking pissed her off and now here it is six or seven years later and she keeps hearing oh well they are suffering and then she's like well, what about all the people they ate yeah. I, i'm gonna get into politics and join this horrible fascist political party victus and you know really just strip away the the rights of all of these pds sufferers etc cetera, etc cetera. i can understand why she gets into politics i don't get why philip is in politics and well, so because uh, well i have my ideas and i think the fact that he is so easily used by maxine for most of this is a big reason. I mean, he's somebody who we're told he's a, he was a scout troop leader, right? And I think that's kind of a key to that. He's the kind of kid who joined the Boy Scouts, and he's probably was, you know, the, the, there's he, uh, Henry's mother, you know, says, oh, you were always had a frown on your face. You were always... Philip was not the kind of kid who ever got into trouble, right? He never acted out. He was never hard to control. He was a good boy. He did well in school. He's bland. He's inoffensive. And he joined the Boy Scouts because why not? He got responsibility because he's probably there on time all the time and, you know, does whatever the Scoutmaster says. And, you know, an amount of that will get you to a certain part in life. You know, he is the kind of person who... Just gets promoted because, yeah, he's going to do fine. You know, we can rely on him. And and I think and he I, is somebody who wants to do good for his community and so goes to the town council. And, you know, under any normal circumstances, he would never be a big political leader. He would never yeah. be a, a, a standout politician. The part where he goes to Maxine and he's like, oh, I've got all these great ideas for the town. And she doesn't even acknowledge that. Like, that's him. He is a great lackey. I mean, the fact that Philip's father doesn't seem to exist and we haven't heard much of him does kind of imply some possibilities. In other words, he could have had a dad who pushed him into the scouts. You know, he could have had a dad who was on the town council. I mean, this is me making stuff up, but that is possible. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I I get a real single mom vibe from his mother. And I, I, you know, I don't think that uh, his, his father was eaten by zombies or anything. Yeah, other... but you know, did did he leave or die when he, you know, Philip was ten, or you know, was he? Did he abandon his pregnant girlfriend or something? We don't. Yeah, know. yeah, we we don't know the answer to that. So I think that that's also making me realize something about because I, I do want to talk about Freddie more because his story is is really interesting and is also one of the only self contained stories in these two episodes. Yeah. 
you know, is that obviously part of his story is to dramatize the escalating tensions between the living and the undead in Rurton and and the real sort of swings in personality or whatever that Gary is having and Gary and Jem just gross on all kinds of levels, but yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and I think the show knows that. Oh yeah, I mean, it ge- he gives Jem the notebook. The, the, the note he gives Jem the bracelet that poor Henry made her. Like, it, it, if we in any, if the show, if we in any way had any inkling that okay, well, it's cute that they're getting together. Like that part just kills it. Yeah, he's not a good guy. <laughs> um, and and really, I hope Jem just has her eyes open because oh boy. Uh, but. I, I, I mean, that's part of her self-destructiveness, I would say, at this point. She is not making good choices because she doesn't feel that she deserves to make good choices in some ways. Like, I think going with the shittiest guy around is, you know, is... Yeah. I'd rather she be with Drake, frankly, if she's going to go with somebody who is a comrade in arms. I mean, she has, like, undiagnosed, untreated PTSD. Yeah. So, yes, of course, she's going to have issues. Yeah. I, I think that um, I do want to talk about Simon, but I, I think that more broadly, I, I just want to briefly talk about like all of the undead in the town of Rorton, because what's interesting to me about this season is that, um, you know, we really only got a few glimpses of the undead in Rorton and they, they really all sort of had the same general outlook and the same sort of general view of life. Whereas in this season, we really are starting to see and sketch out all of the different sorts of permutations and opinions and, and kind of people that are, are undead. And, you know, Simon is very different from Amy. That is very different from Freddie. That's very different from Kieran. That's very different from the guest house's mother. (laughs) Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of different um, people in here. And, and also interestingly enough, there's a weird, uh subculture or a weird sort of like denial that some pds sufferers have that they're even undead they you know they try and like cover it up and like deny that they're actually undead you know stuff like that well that's where simon's uh, not simon that's where freddy is coming in i mean we see a glimpse of that in his you know in episode two where he's saying you know i'm a small business owner now what he's you know he's a handyman about town right like he's not you know but at the end of the day he is earning a living he is making money he is sure. doing doing a job i mean that's the we look at kieran we look at amy we look at simon like okay they're not really working for a living they're not really you know whatever they, there's nothing that the give back program is taking them away from quote unquote uh but somebody like freddie aside he has from a their job. rights well yeah and, and of course and you know you know <laughs> no there's that but um you know, some what some of these people have careers. You know, they 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 have lives. Well, yeah, because I mean, there's that that nice little detail. I think it's an I forget if if it was an episode three or four, but um, you know, I I love the running joke in these episodes that Kieran's father is just trying to convince Kieran very strongly oh. that the Give Pack program is going to lead somewhere because he's got this little like pamphlet or something you printed out from the internet about like, <laughs> this undead CEO, and you're like, oh, Kieran's father, you're so naive. But I know Kieran even boys that is like this has been going on for a couple of days, <laughs> like. Yeah, like that's not real. Or if it is, then she was a CEO before all this happened. Uh, that, yeah, you're right. Like, I think that for some of the undead, they were obviously able to slot into their old lives very easily. I think a good example of that is the guest house owner's mother. Mm-hmm. 
you know, her life doesn't seem any different than it was before she died. She She's living in the same house with the same people. She's watching the same TV. Like, it's all the same to her. She didn't have a job. She was probably retired, you know, whatever. Uh, Freddie obviously is in a different situation. You know, he, he does understand that he is not alive, but at the same time, he's living in his... I'll call her ex-wife for sake of a better term yeah. uh, house with her new husband. It's all very uncomfortable for all of them. You know, she has these conflicting feelings. He has these feelings for her. You know, he cannot really recognize that her life has moved on. He is trying to slot himself into a life that no longer exists. And then you have characters like Simon and Amy who very much recognize that their old lives are over and that, they they need to forge new lives with a new undead culture and all this kind of stuff. And Karen is sort of caught in the in the middle of all of this. Yeah, well, I mean, somebody like Simon especially didn't have much of a life before this. I mean, he was a heroin addict, right? Like, we don't know what Amy did before being undead, but, you know, they... I mean, we know she died of, like, what, leukemia? Yeah, and again, was very young, so she may have just, you know, been a, even been a student, you know, at that point. You know, she, she was, a, you know, the, the, these are people who didn't have much of a life and a purpose in a community, and in a way, you know, and again, I think about kind of that first real Amy scene where she's talking, you know, where she's talking about how, you know, she died of leukemia, and this is a second chance, and this is wonderful. I mean... There is a real degree to which being undead is liberating. Yeah, yeah, because certainly for people that didn't lose much, it, it doesn't really matter. Whereas for people that did lose a lot, like Freddie, he just can't come to terms with it. You know, it, it, it's much easier for for Simon to go, okay, well, whatever, wash his hands of his old life, because as you said, he was a heroin addict. It didn't really matter that he died because he didn't really have a life. So I, I think that it's a good opportunity to segue into Simon because. Uh, Kieran wants to segue into Simon. Uh, <laughs> so Kieran is canonically gay, I guess. Uh, but I don't know. The whole relationship between them seems yeah. very... It it, it it doesn't really jive for me. Like, I, I get yeah. a real sense that Simon is, like, grooming Kieran for something. Yeah. And, and-, and using Kieran's sexuality to get to him. Whereas Kieran, like, I don't really understand why he would be attracted to simon it, it that's the one part Besides of it that the always obvious strikes. i mean uh, i i think to a degree simon is handsome and charismatic and is he i i, I think he's attractive uh, I mean, yes he's attractive but, it, but like uh, also he's he, he's you know, weird we, and creepy and yeah like, but you know you're 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 a you know 36 year old man who's lived in cities like Kieran is an 18-year-old kid who is in his tiny, small town. How many gay people do you think he knows? There's Rick and there's Simon. I mean, I I think to a degree, Kieran is, you know, Simon has that line where, oh, Amy needs love. And, you know, she's, you know, she's somebody who needs to be loved. I think Simon has a couple of degrees of that, not to the extent that Amy does, but I think... Simon is just such a forceful personality that, you know, him showing attention to Kieran in this way is exciting to Kieran. That said, Kieran does, I mean, at least in the, you know, pre, pre before that, you know, lunch, uh, you know, when he's in the house and he's saying, you know, why can't you act like a normal person and all of this? Like, I think to a degree, Kieran doesn't quite trust Simon, and I'm not sure... 
to what degree we should or not. Yes, it is. It is. It it is very likely that Simon suspects and later knows that Kieran is the first undead, and you know he's doing this in order to keep Kieran close to his side, and he's figured out the right buttons to push. But at the end of the fourth episode, when he has that phone call with. Now, again, now the jury is out on to whether Simon is the undead prophet or not. Um, the fact that he's having followers and preachers suggests something, but he does make a phone call to somebody to check in. Um, it's Maxine. Oh, my uh, God. Oh, um, Maxine's child. Um, it's like this little kid. Uh, oh, my God. That's shades of the first season of Buffy. Um, it is. Yeah. You know, when he's saying, oh, I found the first undead and you should see him. He's beautiful. Like. It is possible that Simon is – I mean, Simon Simon's a complex person. He could be using him and also in love with him. You know, it might be – he is sent to find the first undead. The first undead is very important politically and mystically and all of those things. And isn't it great if the first undead is by his side and then there's this couple? I mean, imagine it, you know, this – disciple of the undead prophet and the first undead together like it's a power couple thing yeah i suppose so but then i just i i I keep struggling with how simon treats amy and how Mm. he sort of papers over it with kieran and how kieran just kind of goes okay all right you know yeah amy can be a lot i mean it's just Amy obviously thinks that she and Simon are in some sort of romantic relationship. Yeah. And and I'm not sure like either either Simon is leading Amy on or Amy is actually sort of mentally checked out. And I don't really like either of those two options. Yeah, I mean, it could even be a combination. I think it's a combination of both. Amy does kind of live in her own Amy world. I mean, I love the line the mother has, oh, why don't you bring your nice unconventional friend or something like that, Like, which is a nice way of saying she's a little bit crazy. But Such, um, such an English way to put that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think Amy, even when she was alive, never quite lived in reality. There are people who are like that, and... You know, she is a person who has whims and passions and, you know, has ideas and fantasies and, you know, everybody around her might be willing to indulge her. Again, we aren't sure to what degree the undead are sexual with each other and, you know, okay, you know, we're together. Yeah. Oh, yes, Amy, we're totally dating. Like, I think... But again, this is a little con. It is condescending in a way that I don't necessarily like because you know, is Simon just treating her like you know? Okay, we're in kindergarten. We're going out. You're my girlfriend. You know, kind of a thing. Right. That's the thing that gets me. And you know, is is Simon gay? I mean, the one thing that is weird about this show in general is that everyone is very sort of oblique about actually just coming out and saying, "Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm a queer person," like or whatever. Like. You know, that that's a part of it that is, is a little odd to me. And I don't know, maybe it's we're just supposed to like, well, these kids today, they don't have sexualities or whatever. But it is a little strange. And I think that mm, I think it, I think that's the town. I mean, I I don't think that at the lunch. But Simon's you know, not from Rorton, though. And no. I, mean, I, I can see Kieran struggling with 
admitting to himself that he's gay, but I don't really see Simon having that issue. So, I mean, Simon probably, I mean, it's hard to get heroin outside of big cities. So (laughs) assumedly he lived in wherever he lived, London or something. I I don't know what his accent is, but. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think the last, you know, couple of people that I hooked up with, I didn't exactly say like, I'm gay, you know, to like, it was just kind of assumed, you know, I'm interested in, you know, having sex with you. That's Yeah, but you, you also didn't have a con, like that also wasn't a person who was like, supposedly dating your best yes. friend who happened to be a woman, like who then hit on you. Like, you I mean, I think if no, that happened would... to you, you might be like, wait a second, are you gay? What's going on here? Like, yeah, you know, no, that's you know. fair. Um, yeah, I think all that's right. And I, I think that the other thing that I, I struggle with with Amy is that she's really atomized in her own story this year, this series. Like, you know, certainly she's got stuff going on with uh, uh, Karen and with Simon and she's got her and Philip. and Philip, of course. Yes, especially at the end of the fourth season. And I really I, I ship them. I want them to be happy. Um, yeah. But because Philip and Amy deserve each other, I think that they would be good for each other. But uh you know, in in a certain sense, when when Amy sees Karen and Simon kissing in the road, like that's she's not that shocked or surprised. It doesn't seem a, and then also b, like her little improv with the bottle of vodka is kind of wonderful, <laughs> um, because yeah. she's obviously at loose end. She's obviously also very worried about her health, and I I think that Amy is not really sure that the path that she set her life on at the end of the first series when she left Rorton has worked out for her very well. Yeah, well, you know, just as she's able to get very deep into certain fantasies, she might be able to, you know, get over them just as quickly. Again, you know, she's somebody of whims and... You know, she she seems to be getting back, getting with P, uh, Philip at the end of the episode almost on a whim because she, you know, he did a nice thing. She sees him in a different light. She feels bad for him. She, you know, is proud of him in her way. And, you know, par- I, 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 she doesn't really have the time to properly process the Simon thing, right? It's only a couple hours later that she sees the protest and all of that happens and... You know, it's not like she's done, I mean, she's certainly done her share of soul searching, but I think she kind of, it seems like she figured it out quickly and moved on to her next thing, and that happens to be, you know, all right, well, Philip's actually a nice guy deep down, and he did the right thing, so, you know, let's explore this. Yeah, I think that's right, and I I think the other the other thing that is kind of subtext with Amy's story in in the in these first four episodes is that you know she's got some sort of health thing going on. She she yeah. does go to the doctor finally, and and he gives him neurotriptyline plus, which is great. And uh, it's like, wow, what, what was wrong with the old stuff? Um, and, and even Shirley says, like, yeah, she's reading the agreement. And she's like, yeah, it's just more of the same. Like, it's we don't have a ton about this pharmaceutical company, but everything we've seen makes it seem like they're a pharmaceutical company. Right, right. Uh, you know, that, that she's very concerned about perhaps not having a future, you know, about yeah. dying or whatever. And so maybe that's part of her calculation, too, where... 
you know, yeah. we, we've all done this where we see something or we find out something that is very light, that could be very life altering or very life changing. And you just kind of go, I, I can't really deal with this right yeah. now. So I'm just going to like go eat some ice cream or whatever, or go see a movie or like, just forget I saw this and go to work because, you know, yeah. I, I can't deal with this right now. And I think that that's what Amy seeing Karen and Simon making out in the street was. That was her moment where she's like, Oh, okay. I can't really deal with this right now. But (laughs) I think on another sense, you know, she realizes that she doesn't necessarily, even if, even if Simon and Karen were not making out and she didn't see that, it's very possible that Amy might not have a future anyway. And so why not sleep with Philip? Because he's nice and he looks good and he's kind of a nice person and whatever. Right. I mean, it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah. I mean, there's, Amy is not somebody who is used to having a future. Again, if she, you know, she died at what, 22, 23, when she's just kind of starting off. And, yeah. you know, that's it, nipped in the bud. You know, now she comes, it's a, you know, she's had a year of, you know, a couple of years of unlife. And again, you know, something may happen. You know, she might be re dying and stuff. Like, there is a, her impulsiveness might just come with the fact that. She's not used to having time, you know? A couple of characters say, you know, oh, I've got all the time in the world, but Amy never really had that. Right. She never really did. And I think that's a good point that that for a lot of the undead, this probably feels like a bonus. So whatever they do yeah. with it is that, you know, they, they should be fearless because they already died once. So what else is yeah. there to fear? Well, I think that, you know... There's a lot of little story beats that we could talk about. I don't know that we need to exhaustively run down the list of them. Um, you know, we will see what happens in the next two episodes. But uh, I, I guess the last thing that that we should talk about before we wrap this up is, well, there's two things. I think number one, the protest at the brothel and more about what Maxine is doing, not necessarily the protest at the brothel. Yeah. Because, you know, we haven't talked about Maxine a lot. She hasn't done a ton in these two episodes that she hadn't done in the previous two but her plot or whatever is proceeding apace and you know she is you know she is really not a nice person at this point oh. and the show is establishing that she is not a nice person and that her ultimate aim is probably to what kill all the undead I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it, there is even the outside possibility she's trying to get the second rising so that she can have her child back. But um, I don't know. I Again, she falls under love to hate. I still want to just strangle her every time she's on screen. I love the way she's being played. I love I, – again, it, she's just – such a horrible, horrible, horrible character lying through her teeth, you know, completely uh, convinced of her own righteousness. You know, there's that, you know, scene when she's addressing the, you know, pumping up the crowd and she's just like, you know, we're better than this, aren't we? Are we just like everybody else? And, you know, one of the other is like, when did she become part of we? Like she had, but, you know, and the scene with Philip and he's saying like, you know, who, you know, who is this agent? And she's like, we need to stick to the facts. And I think she genuinely believes that these are the facts. I mean, we are, again, we talked, you know, is she cartoonish or not? But we, there are, Donald Trump is somebody who seems to believe the lies that he's telling, you know, plenty of politicians believe the bullshit they're spewing. And I think Maxine is that kind of person who double thinks so well. You know, she is somebody out of 1984. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. 
And, and I guess the last thing to to talk about before we wrap this episode up is, um, or, or at least the last thing I have is, you know, that 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 scene at, at lunch where, yeah. you know, Max and uh, Max, um, I'm watching Gilmore Girls, so that's why I said Max. <laughs> I'm watching the first season of Gilmore Girls again. Uh, I don't like Max that much. I mean, nobody likes Max that much. Uh, Max, Not even Lorelai, but that's the that's the entire plot of the Gilmore Girls first season. Yes, that yeah. I mean, the character disappears for long stretches of time. <laughs> um, that uh, you know when uh, what is his name? I always forget his Gary. Name. Gary, yeah, of course his name is Gary. Uh, <laughs> well, you know when Gary and Jem show up at lunch and he's telling his gross story about shooting all the zombies, and you know then Kieran. I mean, what what is more interesting about that scene is not that someone tells him off but that it's kieran and that kieran is finally coming into his own and i mean in a certain way that's kind of a coming out scene because i think that his parents are very much under the impression that he is not undead or that they're trying to forget that he is they're still feeding him right well did they give him food though yes they give him and uh uh, uh, Simon food there is there is a burger or something on their plate I mean this is the you know when, when they come by he said you know he says oh how how about some lunch you know and Kieran makes that yeah it's one of his favorite meals we don't eat you know um and I think it, that scene is particularly significant because and this is going to go back to whether or not Simon is sincere Simon puts on the makeup to go to this lunch I mean as that as is true as mortified and as much as he doesn't want to do it you know, Kieran basically says, you're coming to lunch with my parents. You got to put on a tie, you know, kind of a thing. And he does it. And he's, you know, he's playing nice to impress his his date's parents. You know, he is putting on the good act. And, you know, Kieran is somebody who has tried to accommodate his parents and everything. Remember the entire first season, we see him miming eating the entire time with a plate full of food, even though... I mean, they throw up when they eat. That the smell of food was probably a little nauseating to them. And he's, you know, giving it the old trend. Finally, yeah, Kieran snaps. He's sick of this shit. He has taken too much. Yeah, because I think that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, if this season has a through line or a narrative through line more than anything else, or not really a narrative through line, I guess it's a, a metaphorical through line, is that it's really about the undead. Uh, standing up for themselves and 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 saying, you know what? Look, like we are not uh, we're not the enemy here. Yeah. We, you know, yes, we did do horrible things. It was not under our control. You know, we deserve the same rights as everybody else. Um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I, I think that there is a certain element to that, which is that what this show is about, ultimately, if it is about anything, is you know, being about two types of people. There's the type of person that you know, doesn't want to face reality. And there's the person that, that says, no, we need to face reality. You need to accept people for who they are. Uh, this is, you know, how society moves forward. This is how you respect people. And that scene I think is really about that because I think to a large degree, a lot of the people in Rorton, and we can't say this about everybody in, in the country, but we certainly can say it about the people in Rorton because we know them Yeah, is that, uh, for a lot of them, they don't see, the 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 undead as as people you know they they still see them as these sort of like literal others that are responsible for killing some of their loved ones and are now walking around as some sort of you know facsimile of of reality and i think that you know um uh uh, rick's father for example in in the first series you know he takes that to a, a very very 
religious metaphorical place where he's like, well, you know, they're walking around with the face of their loved one, but they're not really their loved one, you know, and no one really seems to think that anymore. But well, Maxine does, you know, she does say at one point like they're she I think in the second episode, she describes them almost as automatons like they're they're not actually feeling these things. They're just, you know, there there is a concept called a philosophical zombie, which basically, you know, what is the difference between your own consciousness and, you know, somebody who is acting exactly like you but doesn't have a consciousness like these are, you know, they are viewing these people as philosophical zombies. Yeah, and I, I I think that's right, and you know that that's why I have such a. I mean, I I really do have disdain for that sort of sort of point of view because that really goes back yeah. to the whole like notion of Descartes and like yeah, you know, like do, put I don't know, strapping dogs to tables and doing autopsies on them and like coming up with all sorts of like bizarre theories about well, they're not they don't feel pain, they're just making noise like a clock you're working on and this sort of thing, and you're like like what yeah. the fuck was wrong with people? Like I don't you know, but. I know, but I mean, listen to all of our TNG podcasts anytime we talk about data, you know? I mean, there, there is, I, I, I think you and I personally believe that the expression of an emotion and the emotion are the same thing in a lot of ways, and that, you know, emotion is not this thing that you're visited, you know, in consciousness is a process, all of these kinds of things, um... Well, I, I think before we start rambling on for for an hour about uh, philosophy, maybe we'll we'll, we'll wrap it there. Uh, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes of In the Flesh we just talked about, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast, Tuning In. And uh, if you give us $5 a month or more, it is very much appreciated. And you get to hear our patron specials every month. The one that we released uh, a couple days ago is quite interesting for people that have listened to Tuning In or Truck About for a long time. Uh, We answered a bunch of listener questions that were sent in in various methods. Uh, So if you want to hear that, as well as the 23 other patron specials that we have done. Oh, my uh, God. (laughs) I know. uh, (laughs) Please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Tuning in show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple Podcast review for tuning in. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. And Richard, I have a surprise for you. What is the surprise? We have a new review. This is oh this my is, god. This is quickly becoming uh, the Barry and Steph podcast. <laughs> oh my god! Is it from Barry? It's from Barry. Hi, Barry. Uh, he says, sorry, guys, I forgot to write you a review until after my wife, Stephanie, posted hers. You were absolutely right to publicly shame me. You know, mm. I've always said that, and I think that finally <laughs> people are coming around to that point of view. So so thank you for that, Barry. Uh, anyway, on to the review. Eric, and he says that, not me. Eric and Richard are so <laughs> great, I could listen to oh. them talk about paint drying. You know, my parents had the basement redone, so they actually painted it. And, like, the uh, shelves they've got in this, like, peachy salmon-y color, and then the others have got in, you know, this off-white color. And the thing is, it smelled like paint for, like, days and days after. And then they did something involving... Anyway, so... Barry, I'm, a, wait, I'm sorry, you, I fell asleep it, for a second. What were you talking I'm about? I'm just giving the people what they want. Oh, oh. I think well, I think Barry wants that specifically. So maybe you can go to. He's Barry's, a person. Go to Barry's He's house. He's not and tell a him zombie. <laughs> anyway, Barry continues. He says everyone, even remotely interested in the X Files or Trek or Firefly, etc. What's the etc? Who knows? We'll find out. United States of etc. 
should give them a listen. You won't regret it. Keep up the great work, guys, and thanks for your great shows. Barry. Oh. Barry and Steph, we love you. Oh, we wish you a lifetime of happiness, especially in a mixed marriage, given that Barry is apparently a zombie. This is now canon. Um, I'm sorry, uh, PDS sufferer. Or undead is acceptable, not zombie, Richard. Well, I, I feel like that's their word, and, you know, I, I shouldn't use it too blithely. It's okay for them to reclaim it, but we cannot use it as we are not the undead. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Next week, we're going to be wrapping up this hiatus for tuning in. We're going to be talking about the very imaginatively titled episodes five and six of In the Flesh. What if they uh, name them episodes five and seven? (laughs) That would be very confusing. Just as the undead have a missing chunk, the episode is missing. Oh, my God. And then after that, we return... As I'm sure Richard is very excited to to hear, we are returning to the X Files. I am. I had a dream about Mulder and Scully, and they were traveling through time. So I'm really excited to go back to this. That sounds like a great theory. That sounds like a great dream. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they had to save a young woman who was being targeted by GamerGate. It was crazy. Wow. <laughs> Maybe you should write for season eleven. Uh, I'll give you the episode titles to to whet Richard's appetite for season four and to whet all of your appetites for the return of the X-Files. Uh, if you remember, uh, like four episodes ago, we left the X-Files in Talitha Kumai, and we are going to be returning to the X-Files in season four with Heron Volk, or Heron Woke, I don't know how to pronounce it, and Home. So next week in the Flash last two episodes, and then we are returning to the X-Files with Heron Volk and Home. So join us for both of those. Mac, why do you...